Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Eddie Hobbs. He's a writer, presenter, a financial advisor, and a media star in Ireland. Eddie Hobbs, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Eddie, for the benefit of those listeners who aren't uh, Irish, what's, what would be a fair way to describe yourself? Would, would it be fair to describe you as an Irish Robert Peston, perhaps? Um, well, that would... <laughs> <laughs> That's not meant an insult, by the way. I don't know who Robert Peston is, so I'll just say so, yes. So, so Robert Peston is a, is a, is a journalist, TV, TV journalist, broadcaster, author, but he's also the guy that kind of blew the whistle on the 2007-2008 banking crisis. He's the guy that he was a BBC correspondent that broke the news about Northern Rock. I see. Right. Okay. No. Back in back in zero, you know, before the burst here, I would have been in, uh, you know, involved in a lot of public commentary around the um, excesses, really, in the Irish um, asset bubble. Um, mostly on this in, the social impact. So um, I co-wrote and presented um, a, a television series in 2005 called Rip Off Republic, yeah. which really took aim at all of the major stakeholders, including the, um, uh, shall, we, shall we call it the deep state here in Ireland, and um, described Ireland as eating its young because of the way we had allowed development land prices to get, get out of control. And I was hitting um, everybody at the cost of living, High levels of commuting in and out, lack of childcare, lousy infrastructure, all of the deficits that are still there uh, as a consequence of the boom and poor planning, etc. And the frustration of people who are working, trying to make their way through um, the maelstrom that had been um, created. So what I had found um, over the course of a few years when I was doing a TV series over here called Show Me the Money um, was that um, people were very, quite unhappy. Um, that the economic success um, had not brought um, a lot of comfort to people. It was just making things more difficult, not less difficult, on a lot of metrics. And of course, then um, after 2000, that that challenged the government at the time, Tim. So there was a lot of um, um, heat over that. It was an RTE, which is equivalent to BBC. So um, uh, as you know, a few years later, um, there was a rule brought in where, whereby t- television presenters could no longer look down the lens of a camera and give their opinion. Really? So, yeah, had I continued on, I would have become a guest on my own show. So you, <laughs> I, I could have asked myself a question and ran around to the other side of the table to answer it, you know? So, <laughs> so um, and during that period, I had brought out a book um, where in chapter seven of the book, I, 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 I was picking up stuff at the periphery, you know, maverick type of um, writing, suggesting that um, that there was there was a significant problem after developing and that it was time really to get out of equities, buy gold, get into AAA rated banks and things weren't looking good. Um, and uh, so I, I had a warning in about that uh, throughout the course of that book. And um, but I, n- I never saw the um, the linkages in the global economy um, and the transmission vehicles with the transmission wiring system that we now know is there and that how bad debt and you know ninja mortgages and all of that bad stuff in banks in the united states would cause just catastrophic problems everywhere else very quickly 
contagion effect, in other words. I hadn't seen that at all. I thought that these things could have happened in isolation with some collateral damage elsewhere, but not the type of damage we saw. And then in 2017, then I brought out another book called The Pivot, which is really looking at the uh, the overall global situation once again and the uh, the excess debt that has built up uh, again since the um, since the, since the global financial crisis, which I don't believe is over. So going go, just circling back to your first book, what, whenabouts was that? Because if I can just place myself at 2000 in Ireland, Dublin when I gave a lecture about technical analysis to a group of investors and wannabe investors. And I remember being driven around and shown property, properties <laughs> there that were basically shacks that were going for a million euros. Yeah. And, you know, I walked into a hotel and everybody was sort of dripping with the wealth. You could just see it. And there was also the story at that time, and it'd be really interesting to get your take on this, um, about the the taxi drivers. In order to be a taxi driver, you had to have a license. And mm. apparently these licenses were just going through the roof. And then, yeah. and then the government made some big change and it cr- crashed them. So... I don't know if any of that sort of ring, you know, make makes sense to you from what it I've did. It ran, yeah, it, it ran into a lot of the analysis. There was a lot of um, uh, protectionist type markets, including taxis, which, by the way, by the time the global financial crisis came around, had been deregulated. But we had significant cartel type or protectionist behaviour in, in the in, in with pharmacies that was deregulated uh, in the dental dental market that got deregulated, um, etc. And um, so when the um, when Ireland went burst in 2010, 2011, the first thing that the that those that were interested in competition, um, you know, and you know, trying to get rid of anti-competitive practices, um, um, suggested that any debt that would be given to Ireland would be, you know, be conditional on on on, on removing the last vestiges of a lot of the restrictive practices in certain parts of the market. That kind of worked, um, but unfortunately, the legal market in Ireland is still highly restrictive, despite the. Um, uh, sort of fabric of change on the outside, really internally, it's it's on some change. So a lot of Irish people really can't afford access to the legal system um, under their own under their own resources. It very much mirrors the British legal system, the Irish legal system. It's not a lot different, as you can imagine, after 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 the the, the lengthy period where, where we had you had guests over here. <laughs> I, I was just reading about that this morning. I actually spent a lot of time writing a bit of fiction this morning around the um, around the Norman invasion of Ireland in 1170 and everything that happened there was um, very interesting stuff. But um, I, I, so so you, you're, you're correct. What, what really happened was in those days, um, it was just property, property and property. That's all people wanted to do. What you talked about wealth really was debt. Um, and uh, when the balloon went up, the scale of destruction of middle class wealth in Ireland was absolutely catastrophic. So um, I reckon about a third of all middle class wealth was destroyed uh, huge numbers of people were put into um, insolvency situations. A lot of people are still in it, trying to work their way out of it because we had very Dickensian arcane uh, laws of um, how you work your way out of these debt problems. Uh, we brought in an insolvency act finally in 2012. I think it was the first major change in in that area for over 100 years. So we were we were actually dealing with things like the Sheriff's Act, which went back to the time of King John. Um, and to try and deal with these modern, uh, modern this 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 modern problem, but even today the the uh, the strength of the power that the creditors still have because of the hegemony of Irish banks, uh, which are owned by the state through yes. the Department of Finance, uh, is still too strong. So 
Um, in those days, um, uh, you are correct. Um, there was a mania, um, not just an Irish thing. I mean, th- this is a human thing. And mm. um, there are other countries around the world that are now experiencing the same lack of, you know, they just they just not, not open at all to the suggestion that there's a significant problem. And what I find, and certainly in those days when I was raising it, um, that it was like standing in front of a water hole in the middle of the desert with a sign up saying water poisoned mm. and a cu- couple of hundred thousand buffalo coming at you looking to drink. Um, you're just going to get trampled to death. Um, so the closer to the precipice you get, the, the greater the deafness grows. That has been my experience. Um, uh, the learning comes after the event, not before it. And uh, uh, there, there's, no, there's, there's, there's never much to be gained in being a prophet uh, other than the sense of um, getting it right. But commercially, there's nothing to be gained in being a prophet. You know, lots of prophets have ended up <laughs> yes. in, in, in a bad situation. Exactly so, Eddie, what, what's what's the situation now in relation to the Irish banks? Have, have the Irish banks been recapitalised fully, partly, at all? Well, they have, yeah. the uh, the uh, All of the Irish banks, as you know, fell over um, and uh, had to be rescued by the Irish taxpayer, as well as the loans coming in from the ECB. Uh, the IMF, um, etc., and a few multilateral loans, including from Her Majesty's government, um, and we, we, you know, our, our our national debt at peak went to went from 25% of GDP to about 123% of GDP, where we 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 stopped really using GDP um, as a measure because of the scale of the impact of foreign direct investment in the economy. We now use GNI. But on a GDP measure, we're now sub 70%, heading towards 60% debt to GDP in a very short period of time because the economy has responded very strongly. Uh, on, a, on the GNI basis, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're closer to between 90 and 100%, depending on how you measure it. Um, so our, our level of national debt is still quite elevated on a GNI basis. On a GDP basis, we're looking one, like one of the best buys in Europe. Um, private debt has come down dramatically. The scale of deleveraging is still breathtaking. Um, we were we were at I think around 225 percent or so debt to, 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 to national income. That's now come down to about 125, 130 percent. So so I mean Irish people have been using their spare change to reduce their debt rather than speculate. And um, corporate debt has been modest enough. Um, there hasn't been another debt bubble, but we now have a huge problem with the with the, again this. Um, type of tiger economy um, um, where we we respond very quickly to any growth in the global economy, you know, because we're very open. And as a consequence of that, no, Dublin isn't working. Uh, it's choking under its own weight. We have a huge housing deficit. We have transport infrastructure deficits. And uh, and all the, this fed through in the last general election uh, where the scale of anger has arisen, despite all of the economic success, people, people aren't feeling it um, themselves. So last Friday, for example, I launched um, together with Professor Cal Muckley of UCD a paper uh, suggesting that Ireland could lead the world in developing a social progress indicator where we go and scientifically measure the interface between state services and citizens and uh, compile this into one central aggregated index and then report that next to GDP. uh, uh, So that the the guesswork uh, and political opinion is taken away and it's replaced by data science, which is hard data from, you know, things like life expectancy, uh, inequality, that type of thing, you know, and then soft 
soft data from continuous measurement surveys of people who are interacting with state services at the interface, and then uh, added to artificial intelligence gathering data from social media points, so that all of this is comprised into live um, uh, feedback to policymakers, uh, media, and and citizens themselves, uh, in order to try and deal with the sort of disconnect between GDP or economic expansion on the one hand and how it's actually uh, filtering across into citizens on the other. And Ireland is a very unusual place because if you if you if you take away the redistribution effect of taxation and government um, involvement in the economy, uh, Ireland would have the most unequal. Um, Equality rates uh, in Europe, um, and but when you when you adjust for Irish taxation and government transfers, uh, we're down to about the EU average, which is a, with, a, with a Gini coefficient of around thirty one percent or so. Speaking of transfers, I mean, at the risk of of prodding the bear, what is what would you say is the average Irish person's um, view with regard to the EU because the budget negotiations, I mean, forget the, the trade negotiations between the UK and the EU, the budget negotiations between EU members are going to be look like they're going to be fairly ferocious this year. Yeah, there would be, but I mean, look, Europe will, um, Europe, I mean, we could talk about Europe all morning. I mean, Europe will kind of, you know, stumble its way through it because it has to. Uh, I don't think that the, uh, the whole left by, uh, by, by Britain leaving, uh, Europe is going to be, um, terminal or anything like that. I think it's a serious problem. Mm. Uh, but these things are always negotiated out, and I, I don't see that as a problem. But the Irish, uh, by the way, uh, contrary to what you know might be thought, um, still have um, a very high uh, love affair with being members of the European Union. I don't see that changing anytime soon. Is, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt, Eddie. Is, is that because of disenchantment with domestic politics? Because that seems to be to account for enthusiasm for the EU elsewhere, say, for example, in Italy that the EU is favoured because their own politics is such a mess? Well, I think it's more historical. Um, you know, we, up until quite, you know, a number of decades ago, 50% of our um, exports were going to the UK. It's now down to less than 10%. Really? And, um, you know, we have a very modern open economy. We we skipped industrialization, So we went from an agricultural backwater, really, um, in, the, in the 70s and 80s, you know, when you were recovering from your IMF bailout. I think when your economy went burst around 1974, and um, we were having terrible trouble ourselves um, with emigration and so on. And really, it wasn't until the 1990s that um, that that some of the long-term decisions that were made in the 60s and 70s started to bear bear fruit. And uh, so we now have a very mixed economy. Yes, there's a very high FDI involvement in it, but there's a very good reason for that. The biggest asset we have is the workforce, uh, highly educated, mobile, etc. We're attracting in a lot of talent from overseas as well. So there's a kind of a virtuous circle going on. But we're very vulnerable because we're so open. Any external shocks really hit us twice as hard as everybody else. So if the global economy grows at, say, 4%, you know, you could, you could nearly bet your bottom dollar that Ireland is going to be doing one and a half times that or close to it. And um, but equally, if you get a chilling effect in the global economy, we're going to get twice the effect. And um, and that sort of volatility uh, can create huge problems socially because, um, you know, the backwash, um, uh, we don't have the same buffers as other countries have in terms of dealing with that because we're so open. So I'm, th I'm thinking that going back to 2000, the property market was completely out of control. But winding forward to now, given that, that there's a lot of a lot of people who are unhappy with the state of play, even though Ireland's become far richer since then, 
um, is it still out of control? Is it just not possible for a, for a normal family to be able to, to buy and own their own home? In, no, it's really just a Dublin problem, guys. It's, um, it's a Dublin problem. Um, unfortunately, too much of the Irish economic expansion has been concentrated in the greater Dublin area. The infrastructure wasn't there. Uh, the housing isn't there to deal with the demand for and population growth that's going on. Our demographics are showing expansion, you know, way beyond anybody listening to this uh, will we'll still be alive. We're still going to be expanding our population, assuming, of course, we don't get tired of um, bed romantics. So um, uh, so that's that's baked in the cake. Um, the problem is that we just can't keep up. We haven't been able to keep up with it in terms of housing supply. Yeah. So as a consequence of that, you now have a situation where uh, in order to have in order to get a starter home in Dublin, uh, you, you would have to have a joint income coming into the family of about 100,000 a year. Right. I just consider it. Yeah. And uh, as a consequence of that, we're now finding educated um, uh, young people. I mean, young, I'm in their, you know, mid-20s to mid-30s deciding um, that they, they just can't, they, just, they can't sustain this. They can't sustain the rents. And we have high rates of tax at low rates of pay because of the fallout from our burst. Um, and um, so consequently, for example, our top rate of income tax hits, which is nearly 50 percent, is hitting at a little over one times the aver average wage. And that's unsustainable when you look at it. And the central bank, of course, quite correctly, have brought in pretty strict um, underwriting rules uh, on on uh, home mortgages, which means that uh, we, you know, to stop any any debt bubble from ever commencing again. So um, so starter homes require you to put down somewhere between a 10 and 20 percent cash down deposit. Um, and then there's um, there, there's loan to income ratios you, hold, you also have to uh, comply with. So as a consequence of that, getting getting loans is tricky. The cost of loans is the second highest in Europe outside of Greece. Again, as a consequence of the legacy of the burst, there is no competition really in the banking market. Um, the two main banks, which was your question, are doing okay. They were yes, they were recapitalized. But I mean, if you look at the um, if you look at the balance sheets of um, European banks, uh, Deutsche Bank across the Italian banks, and look at the Irish banks, I mean, they're they're, they're pretty lousy condition. Mm. They're not showing any great growth in assets, and I can't see how they can do so so long as ECB is continuing to maintain its um, its low interest policy, and I can't see that changing anytime soon. Would you say any lessons have been learned from the Irish financial crisis? Well, of course, lessons have been learned. I mean, um, um, you know, it's it's already pretty well baked in here now. Certainly in the middle classes, uh, those that had, you know, lost the plot during the boom, I don't see that happening again, certainly anytime soon. But uh, all these things can wash out over several generations, as you know. Um, I look, I look uh, from afar at Australia, which I think is the closest to where we were uh, back in 0607 today. And uh, you see the same stuff happening there, um, the, uh, especially the ostrich type um, approach of officialdom, not really wanting to, to deal with the facts as presented and, and everybody just praying down on their hands and knees, praying that the uh, asset bubble will continue while mm. some smart people are trying to tiptoe out at the top before they get caught, you know? Mm. So um, we have a problem um, here. Uh, it's a fundamental problem. And uh, so I think we will be looking very seriously at changing some of the real um, foundations underneath the property market to try and prevent runaway um, runaway speculation and property from, from ever happening again. Now, I don't think you can do that purely through central bank mechanisms. I think you need to be able to control, um, not rent controls, but you need to be able to control um, 
runaway rents, especially. Um, otherwise, you're 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 alienating a huge proportion of your uh, young population from being able to afford to live in their in the capital of the, of of their country. And and in an Irish context, that's crazy. From what you've said about property prices, has there been a not just a brain drain, but a drain of of uh, an, an exodus of young people? Then, no, but I suspect there will be. Yeah. If this problem isn't fixed, because um, we've seen now it, it, we just have a huge undersupply of housing in Dublin, so prices have sh- shot up, but rental prices are crazy. So you know you're looking at um, you know for modest modest homes in Dublin, you're looking at at, at couples having to pay you know between. 1800 and two and a half thousand euros a month rent yeah i mean to be honest compared to london that doesn't sound too bad but obviously yeah. it, it it is in you know in relative terms to compared to what obviously people are earning but i, I was just thinking back to when you know they were saying literally these shacks are going for a million euros yeah. And I guess whilst you're talking about the rental side of it, the actual the actual property prices are probably not far off those levels. I would I would guess then is it? Well, prop, well, I mean, I, I I'm sure that if you compare Dublin to some other cities around the world, particularly places like Berlin and uh, Stockholm, which is a huge problem, and um, when they try to control rents there, they just made it worse. Yeah. Um. Uh, and and parts of Canada, uh, Dublin is r- relatively okay. But what I'm saying is that on the ground. Because of the legacy of the burst, uh, people's incomes are being squeezed yes. at very high rates of tax very quickly. Yes. That's... So we're looking at a combination. Yeah, we're looking at a, at, at a, a real sort of um, uh, feedback loop between high rates of tax and high property prices, high rates of tax at low wages and high property prices. And that's what's driven the recent surge towards the left in the general election. But from so, a very centrist, we're a very centrist political system. So what you should, what should really have happened is business should have been taxed a bit more, rather than the, you know, rather than people on lower incomes. It doesn't make, it doesn't really make a lot of sense because, from what I know from around two thousand, you had a lot, a lot of far-sighted internet um, companies deciding that they wanted to base themselves in Ireland because of you, you had very favourable tax. Uh, you know, situations there. So you had a big surge of companies deciding that they they wanted to place, you know, their people there and their offices there, etc. And of course, yeah. that that will affect the prices in Dublin. But it was lower, I think. If I'm, I may be wrong, but I, I think from my understanding, it was that it was lower than the average in the UK and in Europe, and that's why it was so attractive. Once you've got all these businesses in, it seems kind of wrong that, you know, they are able to operate at a lower rate of tax, yet you're taxing your your citizens at a, a relatively higher rate. It doesn't make sense, does it? Well, the Irish, um, the Irish have a, we, we have had a low nominal rate of tax um, on companies here for decades. And that, that, that is a, a policy that extends way back to before we joined the European uh, Economic Community uh, when you, the, the day that G joined us in the UK, um, and but it really didn't kick in until we had the advent of the, as you point out, the whole growth of technology, which is really quite a recent, um, recent sector, and and favouring Ireland for a whole pile of reasons, uh, to, largely to do with the availability of talent, um, and and quite an open access to government, etc. You know, because it's a smaller country, you can do that type of thing. 
Um, but um, but when you adjust for um, now, there are changes going on, as you know, to try and balance out um, internationally by true international agreement to try and balance out a lot of the the bad stuff that might be happening behind the scenes. But when you when you allow for the uh, the detail and the taxation of companies in other European countries, Ireland isn't that far out. And in terms of the effect of um, shall we say tax avoidance. There was, there was a very interesting study done in the middle of 2017 by a group of um, computer scientists and economics economic students attached to the University of Amsterdam called CorpNet, which I'd recommend, highly recommended reading. And what they did was they, they, they examined about 72 million data points from public returns for companies throughout the world to try and actually map the movement of cash um, that, had, that was basically avoiding taxation in various countries. And they, they found that they, 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 they then split their findings into two pots. The first part were what they call conduit countries, uh, countries through whom all of this money moved. And then the actual f final destination were called sinks. Um, and the, the, uh, all of the sinks turned out to be former British and Dutch uh, colonies. This is, this is where the money ends up. And it, it comes to, I think, some huge number, like 20, 30 trillion. Uh, in other words, uh, one and a half times the size of the U.S. economy uh, in a year uh, flooding through. And the, the biggest um, conduit country in Europe is Holland. And the second biggest conduit country in Europe, well, formerly in Europe, is Britain. Well, formerly in the European Union, is Britain. And um, as, uh, we were in there as well, along with uh, Switzerland and Singapore as being kind of the top five. But the two biggies are, were Holland and Britain, through which the money flows. Um, and it doesn't get taxed, it end, but it ends up in these sinks. So I think that's that's really worthwhile study because it gets behind a lot of the sort of headline newspaper analysis of um, of headline corporation tax rates. So when you looked at the Irish situation, that most of the money that flowed through Ireland was ending up in America, it wasn't ending up in the uh, in in the Dutch Antilles or the Virgin Islands, or their like. So on, on the subject of of rent controls and the attempt yeah. to kind of stabilise or, or kind of dampen the property market there. Don't you think that the um, the main problem is that Ireland just can't set its interest rates and that's a problem of being in, in the EU? Because clearly there are countries out there that need to lower interest rates because they're having further problems. But yeah. it sounds like Ireland probably should be raising interest rates given given their economic growth and, and can't. Well, I mean, that's 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 the fundamental flaw underneath underneath the common currency, the whole common currency idea where you have different countries and different cycles of economic growth and attraction uh, sharing a common currency. And, uh, you know, we've been we, we you know, we've been very badly beaten up by that um, when we should have been raising interest rates. Um, we had we had huge we had very low interest rates in Europe because we were because everybody was financing the reunification of Germany. So, um, so that that really drove uh, our property bubble without our ability to control it. But in hindsight, there are things we could have done. I mean, the central bank had the brakes to 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 change underwriting rules. That could have been done. We also have the ability to, which we have never done, which is to uh, to tax, um, you know, development land, unused, you know, unused development land. Uh, we also have the ability to to change the taxation system around, uh, you know, to bring in a site value tax. In other words, where the um, where the uh, where there's a separation between the value of the what's built on a site and the site itself, um, and and to increase the tax raising powers of local governments and get local governments involved in 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 collecting um, 
finances and properly deploying them locally. So there's piles of things we could be doing we didn't do, and we still aren't doing, because um, there is a, a natural tension here, I'm sure in a lot of countries as well, between the landed class, those that own the property, and those that would like to own the property. And the political system is very much split along those lines as well. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. Your book, The Pivot, um, presumably goes into some detail about these problems. Does, I haven't yet had the chance to read the book. Is it, Do you also have, do you, do you advocate solutions? Yeah, no, The Pivot is, is less about Ireland and more about... Um, the global situation. The, the, the level of debt in the global economy, as you know, it's well rehearsed, is, is now, what is it, $250 trillion. And that's just the stuff we're counting officially. When you add on the unfunded liabilities... Um, in various, com- well, I'm just t- take the Irish for example. If you if you take the Irish national debt, you add on corporate debt, private debt, and but then you add on the unfunded liabilities, which is our old age pension scheme mm. uh, and our public sector pension scheme. And um, I mean the, the actual um, those in combination, the the net present value of the unfunded liabilities that we've got there hidden in the background um, is is nearly two and a half times our national debt, which gets all of the publicity. So these are real debts that have to be paid. Um, I did a calculation there when I was writing the book, which showed that if we were printing 10 euros a second and we wanted to pay off our debt, we we would have had to start printing around 790 BC. <laughs> and um, uh, but when you then go over the water to the, the US and you look at the US national debt, uh, the front cover of my book, which is a still taken from a video from um, from, from a Latvian um, video, video designer, very good, it shows it's, it's the Statue of Liberty surrounded by skyscrapers uh, to scale of $100 bills. And uh, the, the skyscrapers are about six or seven times the size of the Statue of Liberty. Um, and I mean, that was when the U.S. national, and that's just the U.S. national debt. The national debt there, as you, at the time I wrote the book, I think was about 20 trillion, and it's now heading to 22 trillion, something like that. I occasionally go on the um, on their on their great page, which shows the national debt and all the unfunded liabilities moving at a rate of knots. It's quite it's quite sobering. Um, so so when you look around the world, uh, as as I do, uh, trying to advise people on asset allocation, uh, it, it it is deeply worrying, especially if you're not a Keynesian um, mindset. Um, and, and, and the worry is that um, that all of the debt that's been built up is not being matched by economic growth, especially quantitative easing programs uh, are getting negative returns. In other words, for every you know billion in quantitative easing, there's less than a half a billion of economic expansion being created and falling. Um, and you don't need to be you don't need to understand economics, don't you just need to understand mechanics. And this is a, this is a moron. This is like a big Genja. Is that the right word? The, the game where you Jenga, uh, Jenga. Yeah, yeah. It's like a big, big, big system, and all it needs is just for one of these. Uh, will finally just tip tip up, tip it over because it's unstable. Um, despite all of the talk that uh, that everything is fine, we've got this. Um, there are red flags. I mean, the latest one I think was on the 17th of September when we saw the spike in the repo market um, in the United States. And the, the Fed has had to step in there, as you know, with about a half a trillion in support. So something fundamentally is going wrong in the overnight lending market between banks that are supposed to be very well capitalized. And uh, I'm not entirely convinced that it's just a technical problem. Nothing to see here, folks, you know. But I mean, looking around, um, we're in a trap and it's a trap created by central banks. We have ultra low interest rates. I can see how interest rates could be normalized in Europe anytime soon because 
national governments, especially, the, for example, the Italians, who haven't undertaken any reform at all, um, and large companies and financial institutions have become addicted to uh, free capital, capital at practically zero, close to zero. And um, and that 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 is um, that that has, I suppose, the best way of putting it across is that it has interfered with the um, natural uh, destruction and renewal cycle of free markets. So as a consequence of that, we have an awful lot of companies and financial institutions that should no longer be in business or should be in second or third division to be replaced by the more competitive companies whose oxygen is being starved by this artificial environment. And that's a concern for asset allocators because. Uh, especially if you're if you're in the wrong side of that, if it goes wrong, um, you know the 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 level of wealth destruction uh, could be very significant before before it's finally cleared out. So my my own view is that I think it's more likely that the next global recession is going to be structural rather than cyclical in nature, and uh, we'll be down into the engine room trying to fix things before we get uh, before we get the engine going again. It's not going to be a temporary shallow uh, type of dip while the froth is taken off asset prices. I think it's going to be more fundamental than that. And my own my own sense is that where we'll end up with, um, uh, because central banks aren't going to change what they're doing, uh, I think we're going to end up with mon- with uh, with debt monetization and uh, and a long term high interest rate or high inflation cycle. That's my own suggestion, uh, but I've no magic ma- magic wand. And um, I'm, I'm always careful of um, making uh, forecasts, you know, given 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 the great um, tradition of forecasts, especially when it comes to the huge moving parts of the global economy and, and economics. You know, you my, can make my, a, my, my, my favorite, of course, is as everybody's is, is Irving Fisher three days before the Wall Street crash. <laughs> Stocks have reached what looks like a, a permanently high plateau. Well, you, he was he was regarded as the best in his day in in the states. You, you can make a forecast as long as you don't put a time scale alongside it. I was I, I was struck. I had a drink with a, a city guy during the week, and I was struck by a, a, a statement he made, which I think you'd probably agree with, which is uh, the central banks have now made it impossible for us to have a normal recession. There will the, the whatever is to come, it will not be a normal one. Yeah. Well, I mean, they'll just keep printing money. I mean, that's that's that. What else can they do? Well, it, um, it used to be without consequence, but it does seem to be having a, a, a some effect in the in certain asset prices. I mean, we've seen it in the property market, which, of course, is is a you know European problem that prices are too high in, and elsewhere. Um, but we're also seeing it elsewhere in in precious metals. I mean. We're starting to see gold and silver bubble up. Um, more, more gold than silver, but still, silver starting to move. Mm. Palladium prices have been like on a tear, and whilst base metal prices haven't really moved that much, you know, there's there's still time. So there, there, there is a certain amount that you can do of this without consequence. But then it all comes at once, and I think, you know, what what you're saying about it not being over and, and there's still being problems in the system is, is something I think Tim and I both agree with. Anyone mm. who's really analysed this and thought, well, have they solved the problem in, you know, 2008? No, they've not. They, they've just done more of the same and just hoped it's worked. And it seems to have worked on the surface. But as as we know from the the rule of, of fires in, in Australia, if you if you don't allow small fires to happen, you end up with one massive one and that's yeah. ultimately the way I, I think this is going that that's a talib quote really he, he just said you know you have to allow the natural cycle of of mm. the markets to to play out otherwise 
if you interfere with it, you may, you may get away with it for a while, but you're actually just building up a massive problem um, further down the road. Now, how much further down the road is any, anyone's guess, but I guess we can look out for certain signs that, mm. um, that, that the market is becoming uneasy. And one would have expected to see it in long bonds, but we haven't. We've just seen the market move into bonds mm. even stronger, which is very strange. Um, but, it, but it's perhaps a natural... Um, perhaps a natural idea if, if you think that if people are starting to worry about the solvency of banks then where where else can you put lots of money because you're not protected anywhere else there's only mm. a few places government bonds and precious metals well i mean i, I, I could agree with you more if you if you look at it purely from an investment asset allocation economic perspective um just using basic understanding of engineering or physics you can see this thing is highly fragile and um, uh, and 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 it could end up uh, in a heap, in a flash crash. It could end up in a slow Japan Japanification of the global economy for years to come. It could end up in uh, some kind of a, a depression, depression quickly followed by a burst of high inflation as the as the printers are turned on again. But 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 I think the the trick that is being missed an awful lot by commentators, um, because it's much harder to get your hands around it, is the social impact of all of this. Um, we, we, we can clearly see from the high level data that the um, quantitative easing programs and money printing have acted as a money transmission vehicle onto the balance sheets of those that have access to the, the pump at the very at the very front end. In other words, the wealthy, as defined by those that um, uh, that have this, the largest balance sheets in an economy. Now, um, now if you if you just look past the, the, the tech, the tech area, which, of course, is just doing its own thing. Um, you can quickly see that, um, um, uh, and, and, and you look at the, you know the worker productivity rates relative to the growth in the um, stock market, relative to the growth in balance sheets of corporates. It's quite clear that there is a disconnect. This is not being passed through, and um, and it's a very substantial problem because uh, technically speaking, what we what we what we're what we're doing is not free markets. I mean, it's crony capitalism. One of our one of our one of our guests coined the phrase "crapitalism," which which I quite like. <laughs> yeah, well, you can see the point that and it's it's quite clear that this is this is this is this is dole for 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 zombie corporates and banks, and and it's making some people extremely wealthy. And the the the, the great swathe of the public out there that go and vote in elections is is cottoning on. They don't understand the they mightn't understand it the, the transmission lines of all of this. They just know that this isn't bloody well working. It's not working for me. Um, I don't see my uh, savings improving. I don't see my my, my prospects improving. Um, I don't see my income going up for years to come. My kids need to go to college. I have bills to pay. Um, uh, I have retirement to fund. Um, and, and, and we just keep getting a recycling of these idiots going through our parliaments with the with the next great idea that doesn't work because it's not putting money into my back pocket but I'm reading about all these people making a lot of money and I can see it I can see it around me with the wealthy and that's a real serious problem I mean we've just got a dose of it here in our general election which is a real wake-up call where you know a minority nationalist party which um, which is which is avowed to not wouldn't swear an oath of allegiance in the morning to the government of the Republic of Ireland um, got 25% of the popular vote. You know, that was a real wake-up call for us. We've seen it with Trump in America. 
um, again, stoking up that. Um, and um, and I think to a large degree, although there are many other factors, totally accept that, but to a large degree, the same, the same sense of, of alienation from from all of this is, is is also in Britain and it's in many other European countries. So I think that long, I think I hope I'm wrong. But before we end up with potentially the economic cost of all of this, the social cost could be hitting us much much more quickly. I'm conscious when when you refer to the the inequality issues and the the fact that the man in the street isn't benefiting and is starting to twig that he isn't benefiting if he hasn't been twigging that for years. There's a there's a there's a quote that every society or even the most you know, developed society is only three meals away from a revolution. Yeah, well, <laughs> you haven't had one in Britain anyway. Since the, <laughs> Not for a few hundred years. Since the long parliament. Yeah. And and all of that. But, um, uh, and, and look, we're, we're very much, we're very similar. You know, I mean, both countries are very similar at a kind of a grassroots level. We have a very centrist-minded population as well that are, you know, despite all of the stereotypes, we're not quickly aroused. Uh, to the extremes at all, um, and um, but I mean, when, when it's beginning to happen here, it is a cause of concern. We're a serious cause of concern, and um, I mean, the only thing I think that saved—I mean, I was quite personally—I was quite pleased to see a strong Tory majority in the last general election in the UK because at least then decisions could be made, and yeah. finally this thing could get sorted out. But I mean, on the other, it was—it was enormously helped by the fact that on the other side of the of the fence. Um, you had somebody trying to impose 1960s style social, so you know, socialist economics on on, on a country that had outgrown that decades before, and so that that didn't work. But um, uh, it, you were just lucky that there wasn't somebody sane on the other side of the political divide, because you could be back again with a kind of a, a weak parliament situation, you know. So that hasn't happened. I wish you well with uh, with Brexit. Um, I hope it's very successful that everybody can negotiate their way through it. Although I think there's, I think it's going to be slow and torturous, and it's going to go on for quite a while. Uh, that's my own sense of it. Uh, I might be wrong about that. Um, you know, one thing is clear for us as we remain in Europe: uh, it's a, it's a much lonelier place without having the United Kingdom sitting around at the same table with a like-minded um, people and a like-minded, you know, set of policies to us. So, uh, so we're now the, you know, the, the much, much more so the, the western part of Europe, the island off the coast, and um, staying and staying as part of it. So it's going to be interesting over the next decade to see how all that works out. You met, you mentioned the sort of the the likelihood of getting a decent deal or any any kind of deal between the UK and the EU. It reminds me, there's a line from Groundhog Day, which is one of the, the finest comedies of all time. It's from uh, Phil Connors, the the weatherman. You want a prediction about the weather? You're asking the wrong Phil. I'll give you a winter prediction. It's going to be cold. It's going to be grey, and it's going to last you for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, you know, look. Um, as uh, whenever you get national referendums, and we've had it over here as well. I mean, they often get hijacked by, by, you know, by myths really you know that are spun on both sides by the way both sides and uh, there's nobody cl- nobody's clean hands on on these slogans but um I, I was calling in to see a client um a couple of years ago who has um who was engaged in um certifying uh, manufacturing units uh, sorry new new technologies that will go into existing manufacturing units for example if you were adapting um an alarm system for a house and you were putting in mobile phone link technology into it then you would have to have your device sent to a center 
which would uh, check its sound radiation rule, you know, to make sure that it was a, it was complying with the EU standards on sound radiation. Mm. And he is the only one with uh, such a facility in Ireland. It's a huge um, kind of football-sized facility in the middle of a field, in the middle of nowhere, because it needs to be free of the sounds around it. And inside, it's like something out of James, the James Bond movie, you know, uh, with these uh, absolutely soundproof rooms. And he brought me over to um, Emmanuel, which he had in the corner, when I asked him about, you know, what's going to happen to this business that you're in um, when Brexit happens. And um, I, he told me that there was four such similar type of facilities in the United Kingdom. Then he brought me over to the manual, and uh, it's an 800-page manual. That's just on sound radiation alone in the EU. So how do you escape that? So I, 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 I mean, geopolitically, um, Britain is just like us. It's off the coast of Europe. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. So the only way that I can see that some of the claims uh, can be successfully achieved is if you if you manage to pull the United Kingdom with a tug down to the middle of the South Pacific, hmm. someplace there, um, it's possible then, but not not where it's geographically positioned. You, you're you're in this. Unfortunately, you're in. If we would be the same if we left, where we 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 would be in the Eurosphere, and regardless of whether we liked it or not, we'd have to digest the uh, the rules of engagement of the uh, of the big market just next door if we want to do business with it. Changing ch- changing tack just a just a little bit. Um, I I'm watching the news about coronavirus with with increasing concern. Um, to what extent do you think? I mean, what one thing we've talked about a lot on these podcasts over the last couple of years, or, or more more recently over the last few months, has been the amazing um, HBO Sky series Chernobyl. I don't know if you've seen it. Oh yeah, I have yeah, yeah, fantastic. And the the extent to which um, the the effect that Chernobyl had on the Soviet Union could yet be sort of repeated in the effect of the coronavirus on China. Do you have any sympathy with that view? Well, I do, yeah. I think the, uh, I thought that was a fantastic, I thought that was the best item on television for decades. If mm. anybody's listening to this and they haven't watched it, it's it's just absolutely compelling to watch. Um, especially the um, the sight of the Ukrainian um, miners going in underneath yeah. the facility, knowing that they were putting their lives on, on the line like that. It was just incredible bravery and courage and delusion and politics and everything involved in the background. But um, I have been watching the coronavirus uh, from its very early stages with, with, with rising concern. Uh, I went and I, I asked uh, a number of people that I know that are sort of leading pandemic experts in Ireland just to get a view on an early view on it. And uh, the issue, of course, is that we are relying a lot on the data coming out of a country that doesn't have the same data standards as we have in terms of its transmission rate and its fatality rate. And, and whether it, you know, whether whether it could be stopped in other countries because uh, they, other countries democratically can't introduce the type of um, measures that the Chinese are introducing in in in, in Hubei province. So I, I'm I, I would be very concerned about it. Um, we've had a couple of deaths in Italy, um, that they can't seem to trace to how that how those people got picked up the virus. So the, the, these are troubling times. I don't. I think um, I don't want to overstate it. I think the mainstream asset management houses are suggesting this is a Q1 problem that will get washed out. I think I hope they're right, um, because it is the type of problem that could create a, a chilling economic effect, especially if China 
if China starts supercooling or indeed if it went into recession, it is it is the second largest economy in the world. And the idea that it can just do it in isolation without impacting on the rest of us is, uh, I think, is 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 for, is for the birds. And when, when I look at um, equity prices in Europe, especially in the United States, um, leave aside Britain because it's obviously been affected by its own issues. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, perfection is priced into equity markets. So, I mean, the the. the the potential is only one way if if the data starts to deteriorate, but it's early stages. It's not a pandemic yet, according to the the WHO. So we'll we'll just have to watch and wait. But I certainly wouldn't be um, suggesting clients bailing into equity markets at these prices. You know, they would be taking on, they would be, they would be pricing in ultra um, perfection. You know. I think this is legitimate, but I've literally only just seen it via Twitter. There's a a piece by Dominic Cummings on his blog. DominicCummings.com from 12 months ago, and the title of the the piece is "The Most Secure Biolabs Routinely Make Errors That Could Cause a Global Pandemic and Are About to Restart Experiments on Pathogens Engineered to Make the Mammalian Airborne Transmissible." And you're thinking, that's in, that's interesting. <laughs> There's a book from I think about 25, 30 years ago by Kunz, K O O. Dean Koontz, Dean Koontz, that's right. Dean Koontz book, you've seen that, yeah, which is really... And he even calls it Wuhan as well. Wuhan. He, even, he, calls it <laughs> he Wuhan gives the virus a name and everything. I mean, that's very good stuff. I and mean, obviously, he's obviously on the ball in terms of joining the dots, you know. But um, I don't think that was a forecast. I think he was just, um, he just knew a bit about um, about Chinese, um, um, you know, the Chinese assets in those areas. But I, I don't, I don't, I don't buy into the, the um, I, I mean, I much favour the cock-up theory all the time because it always turns out to be a cock-up rather than anything, anything premeditated. Well, one of my, one of my favourite analysts is a guy, uh, Russell Napier, who you may know. Um, he's a financial market historian. And talking to Russell, he's, he's always said that he doesn't believe in conspiracy theories either because he says people are just too stupid to be able to pull them off. Yeah, well, there have been some conspiracies over time, but most times, you know, when you when you when you when you get to read the historical stuff in detail on, on things, you can see that a lot of the time it's just just people making bad judgment calls. You know, I mean, for example, the the the, the governor of the Bank of England, the governor of the Bank of France, uh, German Central Bank, and the American Fed got together, you know, just before the Wall Street crash, and decided to um, that it would be very handy. To get some money and capital into Europe, so if, if the Americans could cut their interest rates, that would be a very good idea. And they had they had a they had a nice week together in um, in a very swanky estate in um, Rhode Island, and uh, one of those places, you know, the Vanderbilt's close by and J.P. Morgan and so on. And, and that's what happened. They they decided to cut interest rates in America to help out the Europeans. Twelve months later, the Wall Street crash, because the um, once you cut interest rates, of course, the the, the margin borrowing went through the roof. So, I mean, I have that in my own book, The Pivot. I just found it a very interesting historical thing that I ran across that this meeting had taken place. And of course, uh, these were the smartest central bank brains in the world at the time, making a catastrophic decision with the best of intentions. Just human error. Well, there's, there was the story of uh, Norman Lamont um, and during the 92 Sterling crisis, getting updates uh, from the Bank of England with basically by hearing the sterling rate on the radio in a cab. I mean, <laughs> it was just it was just hilarious to find out that that's how they were monitoring the situation. Yeah. And then the the naivety of of the comments they made, like the news broadcast where he said, 
uh, we, we're going to the IMF and we're going to borrow 60 billion or something or some figure like that, which if anybody knows anything about foreign exchange is uh, w- would go in probably about 20 minutes, given that there's a $1 trillion turnover in foreign exchange in 24 hours. So yeah. it was basically saying we, we are defenseless and letting everybody know that. So it's just it's it, it comes back to what tim just said about you know perhaps people are these people who you think are in charge who are actually conspiracy theorists and perhaps yeah. are not really as smart as as they make out and as we give them credit sometimes and they are just sort of lurching from one strategy to another in in the short term my one of my favorite ones out of history is um sir william priest uh, he was the chief engineer um, in the british post office in 1878 and and he was a sir, so I mean he was he was regarded as you know a good guy, and he said the Americans have need of the telephone, but we do not. <laughs> we have plenty of we have plenty of messenger boys. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. So I I just wanted to ask a bit about the sentiment there. I think you touched upon it before, but I, I just wanted to be clear. So given given that there are kind of social problems there at the moment, and the divide has become bigger. People aren't necessarily blaming the euro or or the no. membership of the European Union for that. No, we, we we don't have the same. We just don't have the same hang up about the mainland as you do culturally. I mean, right. that's just and there's historical. I mean, that this goes back hundreds of years. You know, back to the time of the, um, you know, back to the time of the Hundred Years' War and the outcome of all of that, and when when England really became England and not just part of France, and 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 that whole mindset and. Um, you know, it's hundreds of years of conditioning. Um, we don't have that. And um, it's not that we have a love affair with the Germans and the French. It's just as work. You know, this thing of the European Union has worked quite well for us. Mm. We went, as I said, from an agricultural backwater to a modern economy very quickly. And a lot of that was, uh, and, and, you know, an awful lot of that was because of the availability um, of um, capital and, and brains and, uh, and help from the European Union. Um, and also an understanding that um, a lot of our laws, which have managed our situation reasonably well, um, have been formulated have been formulated centrally in Europe rather than by ourselves. So, I mean, for example, the uh, Stability and Growth Pact, which we are signed up to, you know, is a kind of a security for us not to let the idiots that we have running our government, uh, you know, run off half cocked, making promises um, uh, to, you know, to deliver great goods on the basis of just jacking up the national debt through the roof and all of the, you know, politicians selling dreams that ca- that can't be financed without blowing up the economy. That can't happen here now because we are signed up to the Growth and Stability Pact. The other thing that we, the other benefit we get, which which is which is very difficult to understand when you're coming from a big country with its own extensive reach of power, is that when you're a small country, you have no such thing. So we actually have a reach through the European Union which we wouldn't have otherwise. Um, uh, as a small country, and um, that brings its own benefits. So hmm. um, I really don't see that changing anytime soon. And the European Union isn't seen as the currently anyway is not seen as the um, as the fall guy for our problems. It's very much seen as problems associated with our with the quality of our own domestic political stock, which but, is like your own. It's not of the top. It's not of top quality. But when you've got the the company that you mentioned earlier. Mm. Looking at an 800-page manual on mm. radio frequency transmission or whatever it was, yeah. you know, obviously we probably don't know the technicals of it. 
Yeah. And that's been issued by the European Union. Then Don't they just say, what on earth is all this bureaucracy? I thought this was supposed to be helping us as companies, not not drowning us in 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 complications. Yeah, but you see, consumers don't see that. Uh, consumers see consumers see uh, mobile phone charges throughout the EU standardised. They see cheap flights, so they can go on holidays. They're using the same currency. Um, Brussels isn't seen isn't deemed to be interfering with the with the with their day to day lives. No, Brussels is interfering with the day to day lives of businesses. I mean, that's a separate issue. Um, and the level of of um, interference, especially I mean, in the in the financial services area. The, 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 we, we, we've had about five or six waves of EU directives in, in about one and a half to two years, and it's nearly broken companies try, just trying to keep up. I mean, that's crazy stuff, and it makes, it makes people very angry. It certainly makes me very angry uh, and very and deeply um, uh, concerned about it. But do consumers care if financial services companies have, have to spend you know, one-fifth of their payroll on compliance staff that didn't have before? Um, no. But they would be concerned if there was an advice gap opened up and they just couldn't get access to advisors. That would be a concern. And they were just getting, you know, robots at the end of interminable telephone systems, nobody answering the phone anymore. That would be a concern. But that hasn't happened yet. So um, so I think there's a there's there's a difference. Um, yeah. um, you know, people buy electronics goods and it says, you know, standards approved by the European Union or whatever. They say, well, that's it must be OK. So, I mean, from an Irish perspective, we would far prefer to have our standards set centrally in Europe than have our own crowd set them. You know, health and safety and food, for example, um, health and safety on our roads and our cars, all of that kind of stuff. We would, we just wouldn't have the capacity to do it. Right. And so we haven't spoken about Hobbs Financial. Tell us a bit about yeah. that and how that became, because you've talked about your books at the top of the show, but we, you, you, you haven't actually said much about your, your well, what seems to be your main business. To say. I mean, I, I, run a, I run my own financial advisory firm here for the last what, 25, 26 years, um, but I get bored occasionally and write books and go on television and do different things and radio and so on. Um, but that's what I do. Um, not trying to take over the world or anything like that. I, I have... Um, an SME client base, which who I advise, I try to act as a strategic advisor on their balance sheets. Um, and then, you know, when companies are sold or people win the lotto or get passed on inheritances, I hope that they'll come to me for advice. And then I, I usually set up, you know, put them with a, put them with a, um, as I say, a stable of different wealth managers, and they, you know, work into parameters that I've set. Um, and then, and then I just kind of look after that. That's what I do. Um, it's not rocket science. I don't want to try and make it sound complicated, but I, I have, um, I have, I'm deeply skeptical of the uh, pr prices that are out there. And as far back in as 2004, I was putting clients into gold, um, um, right up through and after the global financial crisis, and continue to do so. So, uh, so you still think that gold has got more upside? I do, absolutely certain of it. Yeah. Yeah, and and what what about the other? Precious metals. I'm not well read on the other precious metals. A bit on silver, but the others, no. I just stick to, I just stick to the one that I understand, which is gold. And I, I wouldn't be, um, I wouldn't stray beyond that because I don't know enough about it. No, I'd go to people who'd know, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't comment on it because I, I'd lack the expertise to make any credible comment. So the, about the palladium or, yeah. or anything else. So there are people out there that say, say gold's a metal. It's in the ground. You pull it out. You put it in a safe. What else is there to know about it? Well, I mean, we what I found about gold over the years is very interesting. People always say, well, isn't gold very expensive? You say, yes, yeah, it's supposed to be expensive. It's always expensive. But I mean, back in 2004, I think gold was selling at 
dollars. I think it was selling around three hundred dollars an ounce, something like that. Yeah. I think yeah. two fifty two was the low. Was it? There you go. Yeah, yeah. And and before that, of course, you had the famous brown bottom. at The end of the nineties. Yes. That was yes. that was another. That was a real. That was a real winner, wasn't it? Yeah. So, so something tells me that if things come to pass as we probably all feel, we're going to see a lot more brown bottoms before this crisis is uh, <laughs> crisis <laughs> is over. Just to um, explain, I, that was Gordon Brown <laughs> who decided to announce to the world that he wanted to sell the UK's holdings of gold, and buy euros by all accounts. So. Yes, so that's that was the brown bottom around, you know, yeah. around two thousand or so, perhaps a bit. A bit but the the before. argument the argument that gold the argument that gold's expensive in in say in dollar terms because that's historically how it tends to be priced is to my way of thinking and we've discussed this ad infinitum on the show in the past is looking at it through the wrong end of the telescope because we know what a, an ounce of gold is an ounce of gold is an ounce of gold but what's what's a dollar worth you know so we have we know what a kilo is and we know what a a liter is, and we have all these strict definitions. But what's the US dollar worth? The answer is it's worth whatever someone's willing to, whatever, whatever the, the consensus thinks it's worth. But it's 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 not a fixed unit of value. So on that on that on that, on that basis, you know, the price of gold could could be pretty much anything in the future. Well, I'm, I mean, look, the, the approach I take on it was in in people that I advise is I, I just see it as an alternative currency, real currency. Um, it's not there to make a huge, it's not there to make a profit. It's there to safeguard your, the rest. Like if the rest of your balance sheet has fallen apart, at least this thing isn't. Sure. Um, and, um, but it's tricky to get people to, uh, to take on gold, uh, certainly in this part of the world, because we haven't had a currency crash uh, where we are. Remember, we had sterling before we had the Irish punt. And um, we call our currency after our bank managers. And, um, and then we moved into the euro. So, so we haven't, we haven't, we haven't had that. They have had it in other in, in other countries, but um, um, so I don't stray beyond that because I, I can rely on gold. You know, um, I, I know it's going to deliver the goods if we end up in a period, if we end up going into a high inflation cycle at some stage in the future. Uh, I think it will, it obviously should respond positively there. It should respond positively in the event of depression type circumstances, where it's very vulnerable, as you know, is that if not, if neither of the above happens, and we just you know, just motor on, muddling our way through for the next decade of a little bit of growth, low interest rates, and everything is fine, you know? Yeah. And But I just don't see that. I can't see how we're going to get another decade like the one we've had, you know? So I can't you, see that. So for you, it, it's basically a hedge. So if everything's yes. okay, it may stay stable. But if everything starts to kick off, for one of a better word, then it's there. Yes. Yeah. Great. And so I use... I use physical storage facilities in Zurich to, to make sure that my client's goal is outside of the European Union and cannot be appropriated by uh, by the state. So, Tim, what do you think? Should we go to media picks or let's do, let's do that? Let's yeah. do that. So, Tim, what have you got for us for okay, media? Okay, so picks? I, I alluded to it earlier. So, I literally only just come across this myself, but it's this Dominic Cummings piece about about um, about uh, biosecurity, which, by all accounts, was written a year ago, but looks. It's so remarkably prescient. So I'll stick a link to that in the show notes. But the the film is one I've probably mentioned before, and it happened to be on the other night, so I watched it again because it it is sporadically very very funny. It's a film called The Other Guys yes. with Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg, <laughs> and it is uh, I say sporadically funny, and I suspect a lot of it's improvised because it has that kind of improvisational feel with Will Ferrell talking about how if he was a shark, being sorry if he was a bear. How he, he, how a bear or a lion would have difficulty attacking a tuna, and it, it just just spirals off into inanity. 
but the this this film is exceptional firstly because it's adam mckay directed before he did the big short um and adam mckay is sort of getting a bit of a reputation for, for for frankly stonkingly good sort of social comedies and, and financially themed comedies the other thing i love about this film is the tight the end title sequence has a extremely detailed account of how ponzi schemes work and anybody that works for a Wall Street bank will be ashamed to sit through that that title sequence because it's just it's 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 it gi- it gives the the dirt on everybody that got bailed out in two thousand and eight and to have that after a sort of mainstream comedy is extremely unusual. Yes, and that was a while ago, and it's probably got a lot worse. That those those statistics that are at the end of the end credits are probably exactly. much worse than they are now, and they were pretty. Yeah, I mean that was twenty ten, so that's ten years ago. So yes. things will only have got worse since. But it's it's a very funny film. Yeah, um, some of it, some of the humor is a bit hit and miss, but it's on the whole, it's very very enjoyable. But it, there is a sort of serious underlying motive, which is very admirable. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Um, the one I've got for you is a very funny short film that I think should have won the, sh- the short film Oscar. Um, not many people look at the main, the, the short films, given all, all the attention on the big films, but on the feature length films. But this is um, a really lovely, very funny short film called Nefta Football Club. And it's it's just great. It should have won the Oscar and it didn't. And I'm really disappointed. There, there's another film called The Neighbour's Window that won it that I just did not think was good enough to win the Oscar. Um, but it was an American film, so that one won it. This one isn't. Um, Nefta Football Club is a brilliant little short. If you want to, if you want to be really entertained for like, I think it's about 15 minutes long, then. It's uh, it's great. It's fantastic. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. So, Eddie, do you have something for us? Well, I suppose um, I, 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 I was very taken with um, Ricky Gervais, especially his uh, his latest um, uh, comparing mm-hmm. um, when he absolutely took the Hollywood elite apart. I thought I just I played that about a half a dozen times. That was the funniest <laughs> thing I ever watched. Yes. And um, I just thought that his um, no, I just thought that his 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 work on Afterlife, um, and I, he's doing a follow up to it now. Yes, uh, it was just extraordinary piece of um, writing and 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 performance. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, I like history, uh, so I would if, if you haven't seen it already, it's on PBS at the moment, which is the documentary series. So there's a there's a series there's a three parters, two three parters. One is on the Hundred Years War, which is brilliantly done by a female presenter. And the same again uh, on the Stuarts. So if you if you really want to get to un- to understand an awful lot of the current stuff, a lot of its roots are, are you you'll find in the, and they're brilliantly produced um, programs. Excellent. And what what's the sorry? What's the name of the series? Uh, there's one called the hundred uh, the hundred years war, which oh, okay. is really, yeah all all of that period, which was the first time that I I could actually understand it because it's so complicated, but it, it's very very well presented and brilliantly. Uh, outlined and and then, then there's another series which I'm just coming to the end of which is on the Stuarts. Yes, got you. And, and all of that, which really is uh, fascinating. It's just it's just very very well done. Two female presenters doing things very differently to what how a male presenter would do it, and uh, really draw you in. You know, Excellent. so it's it's it's, 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 it's history come alive. Fantastic. We'll definitely have to check that out, and we'll put links to that in the show notes. Eddie, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. If, You're very welcome. If our listeners would like to get more information about you or contact you, are you on Twitter or what would be the best oh, way? Oh, I am. Doing? Yeah, I'm Twitter. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at real Eddie Hobbs. Um, um, but I, I tend to comment on a lot of local localized issues rather than British issues. But I love dealing with everybody. So of course, I'm, my my website is uh, eddiehobbs.com. 
Hobbs Financial Practice is another website I have. Uh, but if you Google me, you'll find me. You know, you'll see, you'll see that I've had, um, I've had, um, I, you know, I've had my own ups and downs through my own life as well, which, which, which you learn from. Yes, absolutely, and, um, absolutely. Yeah. That's what you need. You need, to, you yeah. need the downs to understand it, don't you? Otherwise, if you have all success, then, you know. It, it, it all looks too easy and you fall into traps. Are you are you thinking of penning another book? Are you in the process of doing that? I've I've done quite a few uh, all factual. So I've started a fiction mm, book. Interesting. Yeah, so that's what? what I'm working on at the moment. So Brilliant. I, I, I'll, I'll say no more about that. Oh, um, right. It could, be, it could be a complete disaster, you know, oh, so I'll just start. Could you not just tell us a little bit about it or is it... Can you, you, tell, us a to- can you tell us a title or the working, the working title? I haven't given the title yet, but it, it spans various. Uh, it's it's going to bounce from, it's going to bounce from uh, early Christian history through um, to the time medieval and then up to date, and oh. a kind of continuous stream, um, with kind of linkages in between. So it's kind of kind of a thriller, mm. uh, but set across different time periods in time. Interesting, so, interesting. Yeah. Oh right, That's well, a good plan. well, we're going to follow you on Twitter. So please put updates about that as well, because I'd yeah, love to know when that comes might, out. It may yet be a catastrophic failure. I'm, I'm, let me make that quite clear. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to take. In which case you can call it. Mo- in which case you can call it modern monetary theory. <laughs> very, very droll. Very good. Listen, by the way, um, I know this will be dated quite quickly, but can I just wish you the worst of luck today in Twickenham? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Eddie. You're very welcome. <laughs> I'd say the same to you as well. Okay. <laughs> brilliant. Well, look, thank you so much for coming on the You're show. You're very welcome. It's been brilliant. Okay. And uh, okay. we'll hope to have you on soon. Thank you. God bless. Thank and you. Everybody else listening, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank Thanks, you. Eddie. Thank Thanks, you. Eddie. Bye. Well, that was superb. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Tim. That was really awesome. Thank you. And um, until next time, thank you so much for listening. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Cheerio. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.